Luke chapter 13, starting now at verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. It's sort of been a long theme through the gospel of Luke for the last several chapters. And right now at this point, we're continuing on in this theme of Jesus making this final journey towards Jerusalem. And again, uh, Luke has sort of lingered here for a long time. It's almost as if from the beginning where he said Jesus was going to Jerusalem, you'd almost think that Jesus had done a couple laps around Galilee and Judea. But now it's in the final lap or so, and he's coming in, in the opening. It's out there on the horizon, arriving at Jerusalem. And there, as he is on the way, somebody comes and he says to him, did you notice the question, verse 23? Lord, are there few who are saved? Now, apparently, if you read some of the literature that has to do with this particular passage of Scripture, this was a hot question among the rabbis of Jesus' day. There were some rabbis who said, um, uh, yes, all... Now, excuse me, I, I need to clarify something. When it says something, are there few who are saved, and the idea of how many would be saved, when the rabbis discussed it, this is how they meant it. Are there few Jews who are saved, Or are all the Jews saved? They didn't even think about the Gentiles because everybody knew what happened to the Gentiles. And so the question was, among Jewish people, are there few saved? Some rabbis said one thing, other rabbis said another thing, and they brought the question to Jesus. And it's very interesting, whenever anybody asks that question... Usually they want to know it on behalf of other people. Are, are, you know, all those people out there in the world doing their thing, are few of them going to be saved? But I want you to notice something. In Jesus' reply, he brought it right back to them. Look at it at the beginning of verse 24 where he says, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. In other words, Jesus was speaking to the person who brought him the question. The person who brought him the question wanted to speak in theological abstractions. Lord, I'm just kind of wondering, how many will it be who come into the kingdom? Will it be a few or will it be a lot among the Jews? Please instruct me. And Jesus says, what about you? Are you going to strive to enter in through the narrow gate? You see, you see, it's very fascinating that Jesus always wanted to bring it back to the individual. Now, look, I'm not against theological abstractions. Sometimes it's interesting for us to talk about theological issues and topics and to try to fit it all together. And how does this theological idea fit together with that theological idea? And there's an important and a good place for that in the Christian life. But you have to also be able to go beyond all of that and say, where are you with the Lord Jesus Christ? Where's your life at? Because, you know, it's impossible. It's, it is entirely possible for somebody to, to put all the correct answers on a theological exam and still not put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, hey, forget about whether there's few or many to be saved. You, you strive to enter in through the narrow gate. Jesus wasn't going to be drawn into this debate that was going on between the rabbis. He brought it back to the individual, saying again, that first line from uh, verse 24, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. Because the way is narrow, it takes effort and purpose to enter into it. 
And a narrow gate also implies that you can't bring with you unnecessary things. You've got to come just as you are, as simple as can be, and you've got to squeeze through an opening to get through. I don't know when the last time is that you do. This is really something we do in our childhood, don't we? There's a, there's a, a, a slat missing in a fence, and we squeeze ourselves through it. You know, there's an opening that we're trying to get through, and we squeeze. We don't do that much as grown-ups, not usually. But you know what the idea is. You've experienced this. We have to struggle and to squeeze and take anything uh, extra out of your hands or off your person and make yourself small enough to come in through the narrow gate. Therefore, we have to do something. And he says it here in the first line of verse 24. He says, what does he say? Strive to enter in through the narrow gate. The Greek word that's translated strive there is closely connected. It's the root word. It's where we get our English word agonize from. Does that kind of give the idea of what Jesus is saying? You could say by analogy, what Jesus is saying is agonize to enter in. It has the idea of a struggle or especially an athletic contest. In other words, this was a word that was commonly used among the Olympic athletes of the ancient world. When they were running the race, they agonized to cross the finish line. When they were wrestling a foe, they agonized to defeat them. And Jesus is saying, just like a, a, a champion athlete would put their all towards the goal to say, listen, I just can't show up. I can't just treat this casually. I have to agonize and put forth the effort if I want to win. Jesus said, that's the mentality that you should have in entering into the kingdom of God. I find it fascinating because Jesus uses this illustration of the narrow gate. By the way, there's two main illustrations you're going to see. One is of the narrow gate, and then in a little bit, he's going to use the illustration of a closed gate. But let's talk first about the narrow gate. With the narrow gate, I just imagine somebody looking at it and going, you know, I I don't quite like the way that gate looks. You know, it's too wide, it's too narrow, it's too fancy, it's too plain. That's how it is with the narrow gate of Christianity. People love to come up to it and criticize it. Well, why is the gate there and not over there? But why isn't it six inches wider? Why isn't it six inches more narrow? You know, I think it should be painted red instead of blue. Oh, no, no, they love to criticize the gate. Listen, you can talk about the gate and criticize it all you want, but unless you strive to enter in through it, you're on the outside looking in. And there just comes a place where you have to say, I'm going to stop criticizing the gate And I'm going to strive to enter in through it. Now, this is not a call to save yourself through your good works. Let me put it to you this way. Good works, that's not the right gate. If you think the gate that that gets you into God's favor by good works, you think that's going to get you in before God? No, that's a dead end. You can strive to enter all you want, but you have to enter in at the right gate or it doesn't make any sense. So we've got all these obstacles, don't we? The world is an obstacle. The flesh is an obstacle. The devil is an obstacle. Therefore, you've got to be equipped with the right kind of mentality that says, I'm going to strive. I'm going to put forth effort to enter into the kingdom of God. By the way, this is something that I pray that God stirs up in me and in you and in those that we love. 
doesn't it seem sometimes that we as believers or people that we know and love as believers, they think that basically uh, you, you trust in Christ at some point in your life, and then you just put your life into cruise control, and then just kind of, you know, watch as the scene passes by. Do you understand that that mentality is about as far from what Jesus is talking about as you can imagine? Strive. Agonize. There's got to be some sort of a mental, physical, spiritual effort being put forth. Now, this is one of the things that heartens me about a Wednesday night. I hope it's not agony for you to be here this evening. But there's a sense that just by your presence here, you're saying, Lord, I want something. Lord, I'm reaching out for something. Lord, I want to receive something. There's other things I could be doing here this evening. And I don't want you to think too much about the other things you could be doing here. But there's other things I could be, but Lord, I want to do this. Because as imperfect as it is, I believe there's something you're going to communicate to me through the worship, through the prayer, perhaps through the word that will help me to enter in through this narrow gate. Now, starting in the middle of verse 24, Jesus is going to start telling us why it's important to strive in entering. And friends, this is heavy. Middle of verse 24. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and say to you, I don't know you where you're from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now, I believe that if you're going to ask any man or any woman to agonize in pursuit of a goal, they better know why it's worthy to agonize. And Jesus is going to tell you why. I don't think this is the only reason why. I believe that it's a worthy thing to strive to enter in through the narrow gate, to agonize to enter in the kingdom. I think it's good for your life right now. I don't have any doubt about that. That the best life to live is a life lived for Jesus Christ right here, right now. But beyond all of that, on top of all that, Even greater than all of that is the fact that we have to consider what this calculates to in eternity. Because not only is there a narrow door, but one day there's going to be a closed door. Isn't that a sobering verse? End of verse 24, beginning of verse 25. They will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door. I just want you to think that there's going to come the day. There's going to come the time when the door is shut. People don't want to think about that. I mean, when you think about all the sins of humanity, there are many sins of humanity. But maybe the worst sin of humanity is the presumption we have upon the mercy and grace of God. We just kind of think he owes it to us. That the door's always going to be open. Come on, God, the door's open today. Aren't you going to keep it open forever? And God says, no, there's going to come a day when the door is closed. And that's why you have to have an urgency to enter now. Now, I want you to notice something. In the beginning of verse 24, he talked about striving to enter. And then at the end of verse 24, he talked about seeking to enter. Do you understand there's a difference between striving and seeking? Those who strived, agonized to enter in through the narrow gate, they did. Those who just sought it, hey, yeah, wouldn't that be great? Oh, yeah, sure, going to heaven, yeah, that'd be great. And they just kind of sought it. There's nothing for them. They would be shut out. 
I thought about this because some years ago there was kind of a, I don't know if it's fair to call it a movement, just sort of a theme in Christianity that they called the seeker-sensitive movement. And it was just sort of a, a movement among many churches to say, let's do what we can to make our churches more accommodating and perhaps the sermons more accommodating to those who are seeking Christ. And I just thought about it in this particular, here the seekers don't come off very well here in verse 24, do they? And then I thought, wouldn't it be great if you had more of a striver-sensitive church where you had a church environment that was very accommodating and tried to cultivate a sense in people, I want to strive after you, Lord. I want to agonize after you, Lord. And wouldn't that be a glorious thing to have a striver-sensitive church? Well, that would be a great thing. Now, I I want you also to notice that once Jesus speaks of the narrow door, and then he speaks of the shut door. He's warning us that there are limits to divine mercy. And what's going to happen in that day, verse 25? You begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. Now, I believe that Jesus is speaking in figures of speech here. I don't believe that there's literally going to be people knocking on the gates of heaven saying, Lord God, let us in. But, but figuratively, that's going to be exactly the case. Figuratively speaking, there's going to be people who don't realize the horrific thing that they've done and wasting their life until it's too late. Jesus, I just thought it was all good with us. I just thought that I could just kind of casually do cruise control through life and everything would somehow end up good, right? That's how it works. And Jesus said, no. You, you never agonized to enter in. Now you're outside. Now it's too late. And you can only imagine the unbelievable shock It will come to those people on that day. And part of the shock will come because there have been unfaithful preachers of the gospel who have put those people to sleep preaching an easy message and preaching a message that says you don't have to do anything to get right with God. Well, you were baptized as a baby. You don't have anything to worry about. You you were raised in a Christian home. You're just fine. And they did everything they can to throw cold water on the idea of somebody agonizing to enter in. Ladies and gentlemen, there are going to be people who are going to be shocked to be shut out of heaven. I kept the sacraments. I did the rituals. I did this. I did that. Look at the piece of paper I have. None of that will avail. You can show your your membership card. You can show your dove necklace. You can show whatever you want. But Jesus still wants to know, did you strive to enter in? Was your Christian life just sort of this passing fancy Or did you truly, truly pursue Jesus Christ? Because look at what they say there in verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Jesus, we knew something. I know some Bible stories. I sat in Sunday school. We heard you teach. But Jesus says in verse 27, I will tell you, I do not know you where you're from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Jesus warned them that it wasn't enough to know something of Jesus to have some association with them. He had to know them and recognize them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's an okay thing for us to talk about this idea of receiving Jesus Christ. We talked about that on a Sunday a few weeks ago, did we not? About how it says very specifically of Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus got his life right with God, he received Jesus. And that is a legitimate way to talk because the Bible also says, to them who received him, he gave the right to become sons of God. So it's a legitimate thing to talk about receiving Jesus. But can I give you an even greater concept than you receiving Jesus? A greater concept is, does Jesus receive you? 
And the idea of Jesus receiving you is rooted in the fact that here you come to him the way that he has said through the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And his transforming power has impacted your life and it's evident to you, to the people around you. And that's what Jesus is saying there in verse 27. I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You see, it wasn't enough just to have a passing association with Jesus. He had to know and recognize them. So this is heavy, is it not? Look, it's going to get heavier. Verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out, they will come down from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. If it couldn't get any heavier, Jesus adds to it all by saying in verse 28 that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand what he's referring to there? He's referring to the everlasting punishment of hell. There, I said it. Now, let me tell you something about hell. I don't particularly like talking about hell. I find it to be a very unpleasant subject. And when I consider the horrific magnitude of what Jesus himself and the rest of the scriptures say about hell, I find it to be extremely unpleasant. But I can't get around the reality of it. Jesus here referred to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And why don't you just get out your concordance sometime and just do a little word search on that word gnashing. And you'll see how it's connected with a real place where people really go and where it's worth everything for you and for those you love to avoid. Jesus was very transparent about this. I just want you to understand that Jesus, this man of consummate love, he talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Do you understand that? Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Why? Because he is love. Because he desperately does not want people to go there. And so he wants to rescue as many as he can from that destiny. There's an old story about this old woman who heard a fiery preaching going, preacher going on about hell and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this old woman was old enough that she had lost all her teeth. And she said, well, preacher, what if I've lost all my teeth? And the preacher very seriously said, Madam, teeth will be provided. <laughs> now, look, I share that story not because it's important, but because I'm just trying to bring a little bit of... of, of uh, I'm trying to cut the heaviness of this. But I don't want to cut it too much. Hell is real. Jesus warned of it. He warned of it here and in many other passages. And, and, and if he couldn't have startled his audience even more, look at what he says in the beginning of verse 29. Now, be, before you read verse 29, and by the way, can I just say, I absolutely love that. I love it when I say, and look at what it says in verse 29, and I instantly see everybody's head go down. That is just the best. 
You don't know how that warms the heart of a preacher. It's just like, yes, yes, they're looking at the scriptures. They're looking at it right there. Okay, in any regard, remember the question that prompted all of this. What was the question? Lord, are there few saved? Now, the man who asked the question, almost certainly, I'd say 98, 99% sure, he meant that question, are, are there few Jews saved or are there many Jews saved? He probably didn't have in his mind the conception that Gentiles could be saved. Probably so. So look at what Jesus says so startlingly at verse 29. He says, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Jesus told his astonished audience that there would be many from all over the world, from many nations, together with God in his kingdom. I can just imagine that their mouths are open when they hear him say this. What? You're, you're telling us that some of us Jews won't make it through the narrow gate, that we'll find the gate shut. But are you trying to tell us that there's going to be some Gentiles who eat at that great messianic banquet? I can hardly believe it. And that was a radical idea to many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. They assumed that the great messianic banquet would have no Gentiles and that all the Jewish people would be there. And Jesus corrected both mistaken ideas. Look, there were some rabbis at the time of Jesus who taught this. They taught that literally Abraham was stationed at the gates of hell just to make sure, inspecting every person who walked by into hell, to make sure that none of his descendants went down in there. They just thought that, listen, if you're a Jewish person, you're automatically accepted into heaven. And if you're a Gentile, you got no chance. Jesus corrects both misunderstandings. He's saying some of you won't make it through the narrow gate, and there are going to be Gentiles who make it in. And you know what I love about this? I love about this little picture that Jesus says. I'll read it to you again. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they'll sit down in the kingdom of God. He he says something beautiful here. It tells us something about heaven. Well, notice, first of all, that it's a place of rest. What do we do in heaven? We sit down. Isn't that beautiful? You just sit down. Isn't it so delicious to sit down after a long day on your feet? Just to be able to chance to sit down, it's like, yes, that feels so good. Secondly, it's a place of good company. Who are you going to sit down with? Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets. How great is that? We're going to get to hang out with these people. These people in the Bible that we feel like we know just from reading the book all these years. We're going to actually get to meet with them. But not only them, the great men and women throughout church history. Those dearly loved by us who have gone on before us. It's a place of good company and fellowship. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this, quote, But ye shall hear, Spurgeon would say ye, But ye shall hear these loved voices again. Ye shall hear those sweet voices once more. Ye shall yet know that those whom ye loved have been loved by God. Would would it not be a dreary heaven for us to inhabit, where we should be alike unknowing and unknown? I would not care to go such a heaven as that. I believe that heaven is a fellowship of the saints and that we shall know one another there. How wonderful that's going to be. You know, he also says in this text that it's a place with people from all over the earth, from east and west and from the north and the south, all over the earth. And doesn't it remind us of that great passage in the book of Revelation that says that around the throne of God are people from every tribe and every tongue and every language that inhabits the earth. Isn't that beautiful? I can't wait to be part of that. By the way, 
That is one of the most wonderful things about going to Israel. Now, when you go to Israel, the sites themselves are spectacular. You see this site and that site. It's just amazing. But you know what else is pretty cool? Just seeing all the other tour groups there in Israel. You say, there's a tour group from Brazil. There's one from Korea. There's one from Africa. There's one from Canada. There's one from Germany. There's one from, and you just suddenly realize, yes, God, you have your people here from all over the world, and that's what it's going to be like in heaven. Finally, this text tells us that it's a certain place. Did you understand what Jesus said? Jesus said, they will come. They will come. Heaven is not a fantasy. It's a certainty. And when Jesus says that people will come, they're going to come. And so we can be a part of that. Yet, notice it there in verse 28. He says, and you yourself would be thrust out. Again, Jesus is boldly confronting his audience, warning them that they might be thrust out of heaven and face an eternity in hell. As I said before, Jesus was unafraid to speak of hell. The Spurgeon once mentioned a preacher who didn't even like to say the word hell. This is what the preacher said. He said, If you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which it is not polite to mention. Spurgeon said that man should never preach again. And I believe it's a real place and it's a destiny really worth avoiding. But finally, in this little section here, verse 30, notice that Jesus says, Indeed, there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. Jesus reminded them that those who are in the kingdom or those who are out of the kingdom may be different from what they expected. In other words, it's not intended to be a universal law. Jesus didn't say all who are last will be first and all who were first will be last. But he said, no, you're going to see some who are first who will be last and some who are last who will be first. There's going to be surprises in heaven. I like what one man said. He said, when I get to heaven, I expect that there will be three surprises. First of all, I will be surprised that some people I thought would be there are not there. Secondly, I'll be surprised that there were some people who I was sure would not be there who are there. And he said, thirdly, I shall be surprised to see myself. I don't know if he was speaking just out of humility there, but there's a sense in which that's true. Now, verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must jury today, tomorrow, journey today, tomorrow and the day following For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. So there were some Pharisees that came to Jesus. And it's actually fascinating here in verse 31 to see that these particular Pharisees were being helpful to Jesus. They were tipping him off. And to me, it's just sort of refreshing to know that not every single Pharisee was hostile to Jesus. That there were some who were opening and accepting to him. And I think sometimes we get it wrong in our mind that the Pharisees were this massively monolithic group and that they were all the same. Not at all. Matter of fact, the ancient Talmud, a writing of the Jews, 
distinguished between seven different kinds of Pharisees. You want me to read you the list? Here we go. There was the shoulder Pharisee. He wore all his good deeds and righteousness on his shoulder so that everybody could see. Then there was the wait a little Pharisee. He always intended to do good deeds, but he could always find a reason for doing them later and not now. There was the bruised or bleeding Pharisee. This is kind of my favorite. This was the Pharisee who was so holy that every time he was walking down the street and a woman passed by, he would turn his head so he was constantly running into things and he was bruised and bloody because of it. There was the hump-backed Pharisee who was so humble that he walked bent over, barely lifting his feet just so everybody would see how humble he was. There was the always counting Pharisee who was always counting up his good deeds and believed that he put God in debt to him for all the good that he had done. Then there was the fearful Pharisee who did good, but only because he was terrified that God would judge him if he did not. And then finally, there was the God-fearing Pharisee who really loved God and did good deeds to please the God that he loved. Sounds like Jesus run into some of these last kind of Pharisees right here. And what do they do? They warn him. Jesus, Herod is out to get you. Now, I want to remind you that Herod had jurisdiction over the area of Galilee. This is not Herod the Great, who was the evil king that reigned when Jesus was born. This is one of his, uh, um, his descendants. And so this particular Herod, I believe it's Herod Antipas, but I'm just saying that off the top of my head. Uh, This particular Herod was the ruler over the region of Galilee. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, you better get out of here because Herod is out to get you. What did he reply? Verse 32, go tell that fox. And I don't care, basically, is what he said. What did he mean when he called Herod a fox? Well, the idea is probably that he's referring to him as a cunning but weak ruler. Usually a fox was given in contrast to a noble animal such as a lion. Herod is a cunning but a weak ruler. You tell that fox, verse 32, that behold I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. That's sort of glorious. Jesus says, you tell that fox I'm going to keep just right on doing what I'm doing. Matter of fact, and then he says something that I'm sure that not a person at the time realized that he said, today, tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Now, you and I, on the other side of the cross, we go, ooh. He's referring to his resurrection. But at the moment, this is just sort of a little seed that Jesus is planting ahead of the fact, and this would be obviously the total rebuke to Herod. Then he says something very cryptic at the end of verse 33, where he says this, it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus is speaking with a touch of irony here. Of course, it was true that somewhere along the way in the history of God's people that there was a prophet who perished outside of Jerusalem. But Jesus was speaking in a figure of speech, probably using a saying of the day that just said, Jerusalem is the place where the prophets die. And how ironic. How ironic that when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem now, this is the place where he's going to die. Where Jerusalem should be the place that receives him so triumphantly as king. But they don't. And that's why Jesus gives this anguished expression 
in the last two verses of our chapter, starting at verse 34, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you that you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, when God says a name twice, it's because he says it with special feeling and emotion. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, Martha, Martha. Saul, Saul. You get the point? And so Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He had such a deep love for Jerusalem, even though it was the place that they killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to him. Shouldn't it be like this? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I can't wait to bring judgment upon a city that would kill me. But that's not Jesus' heart. Even with this city that would, in a generation to come, experience such great judgment when the Roman armies came upon it, Jesus doesn't rejoice in that. He doesn't say, ooh, you're going to get it for giving it to me. No, his heart is broken over the judgment that's to come upon that city. And he's broken over these people who will reject him. Friends, if you're going to reject Jesus Christ or if someone near to you is, I just want you to know that Jesus doesn't look forward to that person's judgment with glee. His heart breaks. His heart breaks because in everything that he is, he said, I did everything to provide salvation for that person. I did everything. I paid the ultimate price at the cross. I could do nothing greater. And so it breaks his heart when people reject This is what he says. Look at it there in verse 34. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I want to protect you. I want to nourish you. I want to cherish you. That's Jesus' heart. G. Campbell Morgan called this a display of the mother heart of God. Sometimes we talk about the father heart of God. Here's a display of the mother heart of God. Just as that hen protects the little chicks. I want to protect you. I want to make you safe. I want to make you happy. Do you hear the little chicks chirping under the safety of the hen's, you know, protection? It's such a sweet, I want to make you warm. I want to make you feel loved. I want you to be part of a blessed community. I I want you to, to experience growth and to develop. I want you to know my love, but it can only happen if you'll come and take shelter under my wings. But what was the problem? It wasn't that the wings weren't big enough. It wasn't that the heart wasn't there. It wasn't that the, the nourishment wasn't available. But listen, verse 34 says, but you were not willing. The problem was not the willingness of Jesus. He says, how often did I want to do this? The problem was that, to use the illustration, the little chicks were not willing. They ran away instead of finding the protection that they should have had. Then Jesus closes, and we'll close with this. He says, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a key statement. This tells us that Jesus Christ will not return to this earth. And do we believe that Jesus is coming again? I hope you do, because he just said he would. 
Jesus is returning to this earth, but he will not come again until he is received as Messiah by the Jewish people. As Paul would later write in the letter to the Romans, he would say, and so all Israel shall be saved. And I know in some ways this seems fantastic. It seems how could it happen? Because there are so many Jewish people today as dearly loved as they are by us and by other evangelical Christians. As dearly loved, they think, no, I can't become a Christian because if I become a Christian, I lose my Jewish identity. No, I don't want to do that. It's such a foreign thing to me. But the Bible says that it will happen. That they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their firstborn son. It will happen. And this is why we have a special heart for what God may do among the Jewish root that is among us in this world. Because make no mistake about it, Christianity is like a glorious olive tree that grows out of a Jewish root. We Gentiles are grafted in. And one day this great work will happen where the Spirit of God will draw the Jewish people into faith, into their Messiah. Can't happen soon enough for me. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, that makes us think of how ready we have to be for your return. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each individual heart about what they need to do to to enter in through the narrow gate. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us if we're just sort of demanding, almost childishly, that somehow it's your job to make the Christian life and our life all easy for us. Instead, Lord, we say, in whatever way we have to agonize to enter in, we will receive it. And we're so grateful that that when we do, you shelter us like that mother hen shelters her chicks. Help us to receive some of that from you. And bring salvation to your people. Bring salvation to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And bring, Lord, bring the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to that faith. In Jesus' name.